Welcome to Legacy Sport Live, stories of the people who are shaping the conversation at the intersection of sport, business and purpose. I'm Neil Duffy, co-author of our new book, Legacy Sport, how to win at the business of sport in the age of social good. Today I'm talking to Dr. John Izzo, leading author, speaker and executive coach. John shares with us his wealth of knowledge on the subject of leadership and purpose and convinces us, beyond doubt, that doing good in business today can also mean doing well, not only from a profit perspective, but also in terms of higher employee engagement and greater customer loyalty. John, I'm so excited to have you um, with us today. Um, someone who I've had the privilege of working with professionally over the last few years and also got to know um, at a personal level. Um, you know, you're kind of described as, as one of the kind of gurus of purpose um, out there, especially in the world of leadership. Uh, I'm interested to understand where this journey started for you all, John. Where did you, you know, what's your backstory? How did you um, start out and how did you end up even caring about purpose? Well, you know, I think, uh, first of all, Neil, uh, same feelings on this end. I've so enjoyed getting to know you and working with you and a lot, lot of admiration and respect for you and, and your, your work. So uh, really, there's two things, I guess, that got me into this work. First, there's the personal side. Um, and two experiences stand out for me. Uh, I was a Presbyterian minister in my first career, and my second assignment was in 1984 in Youngstown, Ohio, uh, which was the epicenter at the time of these steel mills closing down, what came to be called the Rust Belt. And uh, I had many members of my church uh, who worked in the steel mills. And there was one elder in my church called Hollis Hall, who was probably about 55 years old at the time. And he was one of those guys you could tell at one time there was like an incredible spark in this guy. He was just on fire in his life. And, and, and the spark was entirely gone. He was like a shell of his former self. He was a middle manager at one of these steel companies. And as I got to know Hollis Hall, I came to realize that um, the way he had been treated at work, the experience that he had had in work, the way, uh, not only the losing of work, but the lack of dignity with the way in which he was treated in that process had literally destroyed his emotional soul. And even as a young man at the time, only maybe 25 years old, I thought, is that what work has to be? Is that the role that, that businesses play in society? Is that they sap they, the, the, the human soul? Or is there another way? Is it possible that business could add value to people's lives? And then a few years later, uh, when I, I got into the corporate world, I had my own experience uh, where I would go to some companies that had a sense of purpose, where they really cared about adding value to the lives of their employees. They really wanted to do the right thing for their customers, even if it didn't serve their short-term profits. 
And I started to notice that the commitment that those companies had from their people and from their customers was radically different than those who didn't. So in 1993, I wrote my first book, which at the time, it was kind of a kooky idea, Awakening Corporate Soul. And basically, I said that some companies had a fundamentally different relationship with their employees and with their customers that revolved around higher purpose. And those companies perform better than others. And I, and that began what now is, a, you know, almost a 30 year journey of helping companies all over the world and leaders do that. So it began with that experience in Youngstown. That's what made me interested. And then when I actually started working with companies, I realized, wow, this is actually good business. It's not just good for the world. So fast forward to 2020 and you published a book, was it last year, called The Purpose Revolution, How yeah. Leaders Create Engagement and Competitive Advantage in the Age of Social Good. I mean, this what you're talking about, John, is has really entered the kind of mainstream zeitgeist, hasn't it? This, this idea of yes, yes, the age of social yeah. good. Yeah, so what's changed in those 30 years since I wrote the first book, almost 30 years, you know, 27 years, and then the second, not my eighth book, but the Purpose Revolution book, is that, uh, is that it has gone mainstream in a whole variety of ways. Every, every year in the last 20 years, the percentage of customers and employees who say that this is an important part of their decision making has gone up. Uh, the number of people who say I punish companies that uh, do things I don't agree with and reward companies that, uh, you know, do things that I align with my values has gone up. The percentage of, of talent for whom this is a major part of why they go or stay, the impact of purpose and having uh, meaning or alignment of values in your work its impact on employee engagement and commitment and performance, all these trends have accelerated in the last especially 10 years. Uh, and I believe it will continue to accelerate even through the current crisis. It may even grow more deeply just as it did from the financial crisis. When the financial crisis happened, people said, well, what's gonna happen to purpose now and social good? Well, it actually grew because people saw the impact of corporate malfeasance on uh, everyday lives. Uh, and people saw companies that weren't loyal to them and those that weren't. And I think that this latest crisis will do the same thing. A slight pause, then an acceleration of the desire for meaning and alignment with companies that align with our deepest values. Hmm. Yeah, it's, it's really fascinating. Especially among the young, especially among young people, but across uh, generations as I talk about it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think also if you think back to World War II and, and how communities came, came together, um, you know, after that, that whole um, period in, in history, um, I, I mean, I think that's a, that's a word that's going to become very important going forward, this idea of togetherness and a, a realization that people have, you know, through this COVID situation that we are all connected and we're all in this together and that, um, we all need to rely on each other to, to, be, to be able to thrive coming out of it. Yeah, and one of the things about crisis, uh, one of the most fascinating things, and here I'm digressing a little bit, but I think it's important, 
is that the research shows you gain more market share during downturns than you do during upturns. Now, that doesn't mean, of course, that your business grows during a downturn, but your market share grows. The first obvious reason, because some of your competitors go out of business. But the lion's share of that growth in market share comes from what you do during that downturn that makes you even more valuable to your customers and team members than you were before. And I think many companies right now need to be very uh, mindful of, of that people are watching them during this crisis. Mm -hmm. How are they stepping up for their people, for their communities, for the world? And if you take your eye off the ball, you will fall even further behind in terms of purpose than those who actually deepen that during the crisis. Right, right. So John, we've both, I'm sure, worked with, um, with leaders over the course of our careers that got purpose and those that didn't get purpose. Um, and my experience has certainly been that unless you have full leadership buy-in and commitment um, to purpose as a philosophy at an organizational level, um, it basically ain't going to succeed or ain't going to work. Now, you, you work with some very senior people around the world in, in big businesses. What's your, what's your insight been around how important that role of leadership is in driving a purpose agenda? Well, there's no doubt that, um, that the top leaders are absolutely critical. Uh, if I think about every company that I have worked with or researched that has made tremendous strides in this area, they had a CEO and a senior team that was on fire for purpose and social good. Um, uh, and, uh, and so hands down, it matters. Now, does that mean that nothing good can happen without that? Well, of course, some good can happen but nothing really profound will happen. You know, Robert Greenleaf, who wrote The Servant as Leader said, uh, for something great to happen, first there must be a dream. Uh, and for something big to happen, the dream must be big. And he talked about the role the dreamer plays. And so I think the dreamer is the leader who says there's another way and I'm gonna take my company there. Not one person, but the group of people at the top. Absolutely critical. And I think why you do it matters a lot. Um, uh, there, there is a big business case for moving towards purpose in terms of customer loyalty, market share, employee performance, commitment, attracting talent. Those are all really good reasons to be focused on purpose. My experience has been those leaders who also deeply connect to this as part of their legacy, who get a taste in a, in a personal way of how they and their company can make a difference in things that matter to people in society, uh, do a lot better than those who are only doing it for business reasons. Nothing wrong with doing it for business reasons, but really important that leaders also get connected to the the part of this that is about their own legacy. Right. And so, so if we unpack that a little bit, John, so, you know, this, uh, something that's often intrigued me is the connection between personal purpose and organizational corporate purpose. I mean, do the two, do the two need to go hand in hand or can they coexist? Can different purposes coexist alongside each other? 
Well, yes, of, of course they can. But I think that one, I'll tell you an instructive story might be useful in your book, might not. When Dolph Vendenbrink, and I can send you the spelling of his name, took over as the CEO of Heineken Mexico, and he is a client of ours. He's now in, runs Southeast Asia for them. But so they're all independent companies at Heineken. So when he took over, you know, pretty much the purpose of Heineken Mexico was to sell as much beer as they possibly could. Now, I don't mean they weren't a good corporate citizen. I don't mean that they, you know, didn't do good things, but it was pretty much a market-driven, sales-driven company. And he wanted to reimagine the purpose to something more, more profound. So he went away uh, on a series of retreats with his with his senior leaders. And he, he actually had them spend a lot of time talking about their personal purpose, what their purpose was in their lives. And only after they really had explored that deeply did they begin to talk about the purpose of the company. And Dolph said, the reason I did that is I knew that in people's personal lives, their purpose was not gonna be just about making money. And sure enough, you ask people what their purpose is in their lives. Well, I wanna have fun. I, wanna, I want my kids to do better than I did. I wanna add value to my you know, the family, to my neighborhood. You, know, you, you get the idea, right? When you connect people to their personal purpose, they usually think about contribution and family and love. But in the corporate world, we often immediately go to profit and market share and winning. And, and he said, by taking them first on the personal journey, then when we talked about the purpose of Heineken Mexico, he said people came at it from a different place. And their ultimate purpose wound up being to win big for a better Mexico which is to be profitable, create great beer brands, but in the process to be a transformative agent for Mexico becoming an even better society. And it wound up having a lot of meaning for them. So I'm not saying that you have to go to the personal first, but I do the same thing with leaders. If I'm working with a CEO around their purpose, I, I ask them first questions like, you know, when you're no longer in this company 10 years from now, 15 years from now, what do you want the legacy, your legacy to be that you were here leading? And I find that question elicits a far different response than some other kinds of questions I might ask them because it's a very personal question. And all of us ultimately, I think, you know, because almost none of them say, wow, you know, I, I kicked the quarterly ass, you know, the profit went up 300%. It's not the things they talk about when you ask them to go out 10 years and ask, what do you want to be remembered for? You, personally. So, you know, and, and as I guess also that legacy piece, as much as it applies to the leaders, also applies to the employees, the people working in the business. I mean, you, you've quoted a couple of figures already of of the impact of purpose on things like employee retention and engagement how have you found from the work that you've been doing i mean the, the there's a direct link between a successful purpose initiative and the extent to which the employees on board and own that isn't there 
Yes, yes. Um, and uh, a couple of interesting research pieces. So Amy Rosinski at Yale University has been studying how people see their work for 30 years and its impact on them. And uh, the bottom line, I talk about this in my book, three ways people see the role they're in, either as a job, I'm pretty much just trading my life for money, as a career, I'm in this role right now to learn and grow, basically for myself, selfish reasons, so one day I can do something else I really want to do. Third, as a calling from the Latin word vocatio, meaning I really feel I'm serving some value or something I really care about in my role. And while these aren't mutually exclusive, what she's discovered is that people who see their job as a calling perform better on every metric that we care about as leaders. They're more productive, they're more committed, they're more engaged, they provide better service, they call in sick less. So that's the first thing. The second thing that's really interesting, Neil, is research that shows that if you compare people's engagement and commitment on two separate variables, number one, how aligned they feel uh, their values are with the purpose of the company they serve and how much they feel like they're getting to live their own purpose in the role that they're in day to day. It turns out people's experience of living their own purpose in their day to day role is a much bigger predictor of engagement and commitment than alignment with the values of the company or the company's purpose. This doesn't mean that company purpose isn't important. But one of the things I talk a lot of with leaders about is it's great, let's say, if a company has a purpose. Let's say you're a Unilever and you have a purpose around sustainable living, right? You know, as an example. The most important thing is that how do I help the individual employee connect the dots between my job and how what I'm doing every day is impacting people community and the world. And if I don't make that connection, it's not enough for people just to be aware of all the things the company is doing. So one of the things we have to do as leaders to get that most powerful impact is continue to drive down to the, the very personal level for people, how their job, their role is making an impact on something, not just what good the company is doing. By the way, what the company's doing matters. It just turns out it doesn't matter as much as people's own experience of feeling they're doing good and making a difference in their day-to-day -day role. And it makes sense, of course, because one is distant thunder and one is, is eight hours a day or 10 in some cases. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, the other, the other stakeholder group that also is, has a huge role in, in this whole purpose conversation is the customer. Um, and uh, I mean, all, all the research again shows us that that uh, organisations that uh, lead with purpose are more um, or better received by the people that they're trying to sell their products and services to. Correct? Yeah, exactly. And what we know is about, and I talk about this in the book, that about uh, about thirty four percent or so of consumers globally uh, would be in this category of kind of purpose-driven consumers, meaning they, this is a regular part of the decision-making that they make. And then about 80 to 85%, depending on the country and the generation, 
say this matters to them, but it's not necessarily a big driver of what they do every day. But think about it as a company. Imagine if about a third of your customers or potential company customers care about this a lot. And then think about the impact on your market share of being able to get a bigger slice of those people who care about this. And then where it gets really interesting is the level of loyalty of these people. But one of the stories I share in the book is a story that folks at Ben and Jerry's told me about they've studied the behavior of their customers who buy from them mostly because they like the ice cream and people who buy from them mostly because they feel aligned with the values of the company. And the interesting thing is the people who buy because they like the ice cream, they often switch whenever like Haagen-Dazs or another ice cream goes on sale, they'll come back often, but they're very price sensitive. They pretty much like, you know, they like the ice cream, but you know, hell, if the other ice cream's cheaper, I'll switch to that this week. But it turns out the one third who buy from them mostly because they are aligned with the values and also like the ice cream, these people almost never switch. So I think the most intriguing thing about the values-driven customer is it's very hard to win them to really believe in you. But once you do, their level of loyalty and their commitment to getting others to buy from you is unparalleled. And so that says to me too, you don't want to be in the middle of the bell curve when it comes to purpose. And here's what I mean by that. There probably are other ice cream companies that are like in the middle of the bell curve. They're good corporate citizens, but not great corporate citizens. They haven't really thought through who's the exact purpose-focused customer we're trying to reach like Ben and Jerry's have. And they'll never get that 33% because they're just good enough that the 80% might take notice, but the 30% probably won't be that much more loyal. Now I'm getting a little detailed here, but I think it's really important to remember the, the biggest winners in the purpose game are ironically the people who take it most seriously because that 33%, which is growing every year, by the way, 33, 34% now, maybe next year it's 35, maybe the next year it's 37, may eventually it's 50-50. That's the group that makes the biggest difference, not the 80% who kind of care about it. Yeah. So John, that's, that's all really interesting stuff. So I, you know, in some of the conversations I've been having with leaders in sport, um, sometimes and more often than not the response has been yeah purpose is great but that only applies to fmcg companies or to banks or you know it doesn't apply to sport um what, what would you what would you say to people who who um have that mindset right now well you know i'll start with a personal story i grew up in new york city my favorite sport to i've played a lot of sports i watch a lot of sports my favorite sport to watch is basketball. I grew up in New York City. Uh, when I was young, no one around me was a Boston Celtic fan, but I became a Boston Celtic fan. And at the time, by the way, they weren't like the Bill Russell days. They were like the John Havlicek kind of uh, uh, days. They weren't the best team in the world, but they were a good team at that point. Um, why did I go for the Celtics? 
because at the time Havelcheck was like their big leader and he was like the quintessential good guy, right? You know, at the time, you know, the Celtics were like a really good group of guys. As I got older, I became a San Antonio Spurs fan, even though I never had never even been to San Antonio. For 20 years, I was a San Antonio Spurs fan. And it wasn't because they were winning, though they were winning most of those years. It was because I loved Popovich. I loved the team values. I loved the humbleness of the franchise. Now, the reason I'm telling this story is that, first of all, I think we underestimate the, the value of people wanting to be associated with good things. Now, then we think about the franchises themselves, which increasingly now sports are not just teams, they're enterprises, they're, they're businesses that are bigger than just the, what happens on the field or the court. Um, and, 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 and you think about, you know, um, do these people, this 34% who care about this in the rest of their life, might they also care about it in sport? Um, and I'm guessing yes, because it's the same people. But I'm guessing most sport franchises have been more in that middle of the bell curve that I was talking about before. There aren't too many Ben and Jerry's in the sports world, you know, uh, too many Unilevers. They're mostly people who are, well, they got a couple of charities they support, maybe cancer, maybe kids. You know, they, you know they, the players do some good in the community. They have a foundation. But they're not really known for anything. They're not really known to be doing anything exceptional or all that interesting. So I would argue uh, that probably one reason few sports franchises see the value in it is there aren't many who have gone to the bell curve, the part of the bell curve that would attract the 33 or 34%, who, by the way, I have no reason to believe aren't sports fans. I'm in that 33, 34%. I'm a sports fan. But very few franchises have ever risen to the level that I would care about them more because they're doing good. That's a good enough reason for, for a sports leader to start taking this stuff seriously. Um, John, I wanted to change gear a little bit um, and talk about another part of your life that uh, is closely connected to sport. Um, it's an area that we've both worked on together. So you're deeply involved with an initiative called the Men's Initiative, which you're one of the founders of. Um, and through that initiative, um, we ended up uh, developing and launching an initiative called Good Men and Sport Together. Um, interested to understand, how, how did you get into, into that world? And, you know, how I can understand why sport is relevant to the work, what you do at the Men's Initiative. But just maybe speak a little bit about the Men's Initiative and the work that you do and then, uh, you know, segue into Good Men and Sport. Sure. So the Men's Initiative, which is affiliated with the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, but with a global mission, which is to enhance the integrity and well-being of men for the benefit of families, communities, and the world. Uh, it really came out of a, a really uh, deep feeling that there was a need to help men uh, move towards greater well-being and greater integrity in their lives uh, uh, out of a belief that uh, obviously men have contributed to suffering in a variety of ways, whether it's lack of inclusion, uh, sexual assault, the misuse of power, 
uh, abandoning our families. You know, by the way, tons of millions of billions of good men in the world, but men have done some bad things that have had a disproportionate impact on the world. But men also are suffering in a variety of ways, more likely to be addicted, more likely to be homeless, more likely to die from suicide, more likely to have poor relationships with their families, less likely to go to the doctor or to a mental health professional if they're suffering. Um, so for all kinds of reasons, men are both contributing to suffering and, and are experiencing suffering. And we felt there was really a need for a university-based, evidence-based program to both research and to do on-the-ground work to help men be better for themselves and better for communities and families. And that was the genesis. And so far as we know, we're the only program like ourselves in the world based at a university that doesn't offer courses, uh, doesn't... Uh, uh, describe the problem, but is actually out in the world trying to solve the problem. And, and what led you to that place, John? Well, you know, uh, I never imagined myself working just with men, because all my work with leaders and companies has been co-ed. And I guess I, I kind of just began to realize that there was a deep need for this. So one of the one of the experiences I had was in, um, and this may be more than we want to get into, but I'll tell you briefly, is 20 years ago, 25 years ago, I was a delegate to the UN Conference on Population and Development in Cairo for the Sierra Club. And while I was there, the, the, the entire conversation was if we wanted to build a better world, a sustainable world, we had to do something for women and girls. We had to create more educational opportunities. We had to help women and girls develop and break out of the box that they were in. Amen, it was true. Over the last 25 years, we're not there yet, but tremendous progress all over the world in helping women get a leg up, helping girls get educated, get more opportunities. Still a long way to go. We've made a lot of progress, witnessing now the graduation rates among women, and so many ways in which women well-being has gone up. On the other hand, over the last 25 years, uh, no one even talked about men or boys and the disproportionate impact of what would happen if we didn't do anything to develop uh, the culture of men and of boys over that 25 years. And, uh, and to this day, that's still true. So I was kind of just came to realize that we were way behind in, in helping men develop uh, and grow, and there was a need for that. Mm -hmm. And, and sports um, provided a, a perfect platform to communicate that message. Yeah, exactly. And, and as you said, we work together, have worked together in launching uh, this uh, Good Men in Sport uh, initiative. Uh, which really um, uh, grew out of uh, two important beliefs. Number one, that sports plays a, an important role uh, in male culture. And increasingly, of course, for women as well, but a historic and present important role uh, with over 50% of men, young men in their critical moments of their, of their uh, growing up uh, and development, playing group sports one of the few places where they have a parental figure in a structured, a very structured environment, a parental kind of relationship. And also that 
uh, sports uh, is still watched and, and, uh, uh, and by many men, young and old, and that sports figures have an impact as role models. So we asked the question, how could sports be an even more um, profound uh, a vehicle for uh, enhancing the well-being and integrity of men and boys in our society for the benefit of everyone else? And out of that have grown uh, two uh, major initiatives that we're still at. Uh, one is a program for university male athletes uh, uh, a program that takes them through a positive aspirational journey to look at the kind of man they want to be, uh, what kind of man they are, what it means to be a man of inclusion, respect, uh, and empathy, and what it means to be a better brother to other brothers and other sisters in your life, and what do we learn about masculinity that we want to take and leave behind. And second, a program for coaches of men to talk about how do we develop uh, men uh, in terms of their character, not just their performance, and what's the role that coaches can play. In America, for example, Neil, up to 50% of young men in their critical years up through their adolescence will not have a male a role model in the home with them. Never mind, some of them may have a negative real, male role model. So we think coaches uh, as father figures, or in some cases as, uh, in the case of women who coach men, as important uh, role model, adult role models can have a disproportionate impact on men and their integrity. Mm. And coach Jeremy Gunn at Stanford has been a kind of a key figure in all that work, hasn't he? Yeah, Coach Gunn, who I have uh, so much respect for, three-time national champion in four years at Stanford, uh, and, uh, and a great guy himself, uh, who, where we did our first uh, 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 program with his soccer team at Stanford. So that great work continues. Um, and John, thank you so much for your time. You've got your hands full with all the different uh, hats you're wearing. Thank you for the work that you do. Keep doing it. Um, and thanks for sharing some really important insights with, um, with people today. Uh, it's been great. Hey, thank, thank, thank you, Neil, for your great work. And I, I, I for one, can't, uh, can't wait to read the book. Yeah, we'll have to offer, offer readers a special offer. They can buy The Purpose Revolution and Legacy Sport together as a package. Hey, I love it. That's love great. That. That's, a, that's, a, that's a good <laughs> idea. Let's, let's do that. They'll get the best of both worlds. All right, John, yeah. thank you so much. Hey, thank you, Neil. Appreciate it. We hope that you've enjoyed listening to this edition of Legacy Sport Live, the companion podcast series to our new book, Legacy Sport, how to win at the business of sport in the age of social good. Please visit our website at www.legacysport.org to order your copy of the book and join our growing community of sports business professionals committed to doing good while doing well through sport.